You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Good morning. Uh, For those of you who wandered in after the announcements, my name is Brian. I'm not a pastor here. I'm not an elder. I'm not on staff. Um, I'm part of a a cohort of laymen that's learning to preach under the training and discipleship of uh, Pastor John. We started that back in March. And so now this is my opportunity to not practice what I preach, but I guess preach what I've been practicing. So If you turn with me to Romans chapter 8, we'll be starting in verse 5, and I encourage you to have God's word open in front of you as we dig into his truth. What you need to hear today will not be coming from me, it'll be coming from God's word and from the power of his Holy Spirit. OOL, or Origin of Life, is a branch of evolutionary biochemistry with a focus on proving the emergence of life from an undirected, random evolutionary process. Said another way, its objective is to prove that God doesn't need to exist. You've no doubt at some point seen the headlines or read the pages of a textbook describing a combination of prebiotic chemicals and molecules mixing together with the addition of a lightning bolt to create life, and further making the claim that scientific research has proven that this actually took place. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Stopping this claim dead in its tracks, among many, is Dr. James Tour, a professor of chemistry, computer science, materials science, and nanoengineering at Rice University. Dr. Tour's field of study and expertise includes the synthesis or the creation of nanomachines, just like the microscopic cellular machinery that operates in each one of us in an unfathomably complex, complicated network of cells and structures and literal biological machines. Who better to understand this critical area of scientific research than Dr. Tour. In actually creating simple versions of these machines, Dr. Tour has come to a deep understanding of the absolute impossibility that life arose from random natural causes. Not only this, but his research into the peer-reviewed studies that claim to have made progress in proving this claim has exposed that not a single one of the limited studies on the subject have produced any evidence to support such a claim. Not a single study, research project, or scientist on the planet can produce that evidence It's important to note that Dr. Tour isn't just any professor in some remote community college with a particular axe to grind on this subject. Far from it. He is a born-again Christian, outspoken about his faith in Jesus Christ, and he holds some of the highest credentials in his field. He received his training at Stanford University. He has 738 publications, 140 patent families, and his works have been cited over 116,000 times. He is ranked in the top 0.004% of scientists globally, has been named among the top 50 most influential scientists in the world, in the top 10 chemists in the world, and named Scientist of the Year. Not only this, his scientific education platforms have risen to be the most widely adopted programs in the U.S. used by over 40,000 teachers and 1 million students. Dr. Tour has published extensive peer-reviewed journals and studies on this topic. He has even offered a large cash prize to any scientist that can prove even a fraction of the proposition that life arose from random natural causes. He's interviewed and debated scientists from around the world, and today that cash prize remains unclaimed. This statement is as true in the halls of Oxford, Cambridge, MIT, Berkeley, 
even the University of Alberta or this church building here in Olds. There is no evidence to support a natural cause for life on planet Earth or any part of the galaxy. In fact, the more we know about life, the more the target of such an explanation becomes increasingly less likely. The scientific evidence is clear. A supernatural cause for the existence of life as we know it is reasonable and overwhelmingly favored by the evidence. End of discussion, period, dot. And yet, almost the entirety of the academic and scientific world, the majority of the political establishments on the planet, and an overwhelming majority of human society refuses to acknowledge this most basic scientific and rational conclusion, and instead embraces the flimsiest of lies in an effort not to submit to God's truth. This epitomizes the mind of the flesh. Turn with me to Romans 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who were in the flesh cannot please God. You, whoever, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so while the world around us is consumed by the mind of the flesh, we are called to have the mind of the spirit. What does this mean? What does this not mean? And how do we orient ourselves to achieve this? That is the subject of our text, and I submit to you today, and I will endeavor to prove that having the mind of the Spirit means our primary, most basic, most fundamental focus is on God, and not on the things of this world. Paul, our Paul, not the Apostle Paul, preached several weeks ago in Romans 8, 1-4. And in verse 4, the Apostle Paul hints at this contrast between flesh and the Spirit. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Our text today will, number one, distinguish between two kinds of minds, the flesh and the Spirit. Number two, clarify the mind of the flesh. And finally, number three, elevate us to the mind of the Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, God, so much for your word. Thank you for Jesus' work on the cross. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be present today and reveal to us the mind of the Spirit. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Two kinds of minds. This is a division of two groups of people distinguished by their ultimate focus and priorities. Paul describes this as those who set their minds on either the flesh or the Spirit. The word Paul uses here is phreno. Meaning, I have in my mind, I think of, I set my mind upon, suggesting my moral interest, my thought, and my study. This is not just a passing state of mind or an impulse or a mere unreflecting opinion. This concept is rooted in the principle that people's decisions about how they intend to live determines how they think about things. Moral choice proceeds and determines intellectual orientation. Said another way, people do not think themselves into the way they act, but they act themselves into the way they think. The point here is that this mindset of ours, whichever it is, flesh or spirit, defines us to our core. 
The mind of the flesh, this is the first side he talks about. The word here for flesh is sarx, and is, in an ethical sense, applied to our human nature, defining how we are ruled. There is a general relationship implied between the flesh and sin. And thinking about this definition of flesh together with Frenot, we should understand that this is fundamentally a nature problem. This is how we are hardwired. To best unpack how that nature is defined, we can turn to Galatians 5, which provides a clear list of external characteristics and priorities of the mind of the flesh. Galatians 5.19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. For this group, the flesh is the focus of their whole life. It's easy to dismiss orgies and sorcery and say, this list doesn't concern me. But what about sexual immorality? Sex outside of marriage. Impurity and sensuality. Pornography. Idolatry. The love of money and materialism. Achievement. Sports. Enmity and strife. Dissension with authority. Gossip. Clearly, this list describes the sinner, each one of us. The mind of the flesh is caught up and consumed with wealth, success, entertainment, enjoyment, health, pleasure, and freedom. When flesh becomes the focus, we cut ourselves off from Christ's blessing both in the present life and in eternity. It is the same verb that Jesus uses of Peter when the Apostle Peter rebukes Jesus back at Caesarea Philippi. Matthew 16 from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Life in the flesh is hostile to God, cherishing a deep-seated animosity against him. It is antagonistic to his name, kingdom, and will, to his day, his people, and his word, to his son, his spirit, and ultimately to his glory. Of course, the application here is not to have the mind of the flesh, but rather to have the mind of the spirit. So now let's consider the mind of the spirit. The word here for spirit is pneuma, and Paul is clearly referring to the Holy Spirit. The mind of the Spirit means placing our primary and most fundamental focus on God. Again, to best unpack what this means, we head back to Galatians 5. 5.22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. D.L. Moody is one of the great evangelists of the 19th century. With his boundless physical energy, natural shrewdness, self-confidence, and eternal optimism, Dwight Lyman Moody could have become an industrial giant much like Rockefeller. Instead, he became one of the great evangelists of the 19th century, giving up his lucrative business to devote his life to evangelism, revivalism, and touring the U.S. and the U.K., drawing large crowds with a dynamic speaking style, going on to build one of the major evangelical centers in the U.S. in Chicago, which is still active to this day. 
Ahead of his campaign in England, it's reported that an elderly pastor protested. Why do we need this Mr. Moody? He's uneducated and experienced. Who does he think he is? Does he think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? To which a younger, wiser pastor rose and responded, No, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. The mind of the Spirit implies a monopoly on our lives. And the mind of the Spirit starts with God and His Word. It doesn't just end up there. These are the two minds. So number two in this section, have the mind of the Spirit. God calls us to have the mind of the Spirit. And this starts with abandoning the mind of the flesh. So what does this look like? Probably avoiding those things called out in Galatians 5, 19 to 20. The NLT translators provide a translation that is particularly piercing for a modern world consumed with itself and its own understanding. Listing the attributes of the mind of the flesh, verse 20 translates rivalries, dissensions, and divisions as the feeling that everyone else is wrong except those in your own little group. So many of us have questions about the world around us, particularly with respect to the past 18 months. We are consumed with anguish and fear trying to make sense of it all. As you seek to make sense of the world around you, where do you start? Facebook? YouTube? Scientific literature? Your little group of friends? Maybe we need to turn off YouTube, Facebook, Netflix, the documentary channel, the evening news, Wikipedia, your cherished secular authors, even your cherished religious authors. Make sure you get your truth from one source only. Open the word of God and get down on your knees. Life in the spirit means your primary, most basic, and most fundamental focus is on God and not on the things of this world. I can speak confidently on one thing with respect to the subject of pandemics, lockdowns, and vaccines. If you're not starting with God's word and his truth, you will never have the peace you're searching for. Consider this truth. God does not ultimately care about your freedom here on earth. And God does not ultimately care about the preservation of your frail, earthly, flesh body. Jesus' closest friends here on earth, the disciples, each ended their lives in prison, being tortured, beheaded, crucified. All things that are significantly more detrimental to your flesh body than catching COVID or receiving a vaccine. And if that's what happened to Jesus' closest friends, what makes me think that my earthly life should be any different? Our postmodern culture is absolutely infatuated with ourselves. <clears throat> we approach the book of God's truth in many different ways. And often wrongly, this is not a book about you and this is not a book about me. This is a book about him. And it's a book about he will bring glory to himself through his creation. We need to start and end our thinking on the issues of this world with his word and through his spirit. That's the end of verse 6. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. No amount of research on social media or other resources will provide you the frame of reference to have that peace. Frono means my interest, my thought, and my study, which means I have to be interested in the spirit and I have to study the spirit. Furthermore, to set my mind on something, I have to have something on which to set my mind. I have to build a foundation on which to set my mind. So number two, build a foundation in the word. Logically, this starts with building a foundation in the Bible, which means spending time in the word. 
Make it a priority to understand the complete arc and end-to-end story of the Bible. This is a major thrust of discipleship. God's word is that single source of truth. It trumps every other source of information we have. It is the only solid information foundation, but you have to understand it. There are a number of solid discipleship curriculums available today, and I encourage you to find one and be discipled. And if it's a struggle to be in the Word and study the Word, or you're starting from scratch, just open the Word and read and do it every day. People do not think themselves into the way they act, but they act themselves into the way they think. If all you can do is open your Bible each day and read a chapter, then do that one act. And it will shape your thinking throughout the day in ways you can't imagine. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish what I purpose, what I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Number three, build a foundation in prayer. Make prayer a part of as many aspects of your day as possible, and make prayer a habit. Pray before and after everything you can, meals, trips, visits, activities, and most importantly, to start or end your day. Prayer is a powerful opportunity to hear from the Holy Spirit. And number four, set your mind on that foundation. Then when you encounter challenges, temptations, and thoughts throughout the day, you have a foundation upon which to set them. When you become overwhelmed with financial worries, set your mind on the Spirit. When you face fears about your physical health, set your mind on the Spirit. When you become afraid of a world in turmoil, set your mind on the Spirit. And when you're tempted by an addiction, set your mind on the Spirit. Only when the truths of the Holy Spirit are fresh in your mind can you set your mind on those truths and that foundation. To set the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. We've jumped ahead to the second half of verse 6, but at the beginning of verse 6, Paul has now moved into describing the mind of the flesh. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. When you start with the mind of the flesh, it leads to death. I believe one of the most relevant illustrations of this principle is slavery. When we think of slavery, we often think of the transatlantic slave trade that began in the 1500s with European slave traders transporting African slaves to the Americas. But slavery didn't start in the 1500s and its origins aren't rooted in race. No, the foundations of slavery are as old as time, rooted in a humanity consumed with the desire for the things of this world, either selling themselves to achieve financial or personal security or being exploited as the spoils of war. History is clear that slavery is the frighteningly logical outworking of a selfish human race consumed with the survival of the fittest. I don't have to go into the detail, but the horrors of African slaves being ripped from their homes by neighboring tribes marched hundreds of miles across the continent to be sold to European slave traders, then the treacherous and excruciating journey across the Atlantic, a journey which a large percentage did not survive, only to be sold to plantation owners on the other side of the world, forced into a lifetime of hardship and brutality. The end result of this wickedness is all too apparent. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But it doesn't stop there. Not only does the mind of the flesh lead to a physical death, it leads to the ultimate death, spiritual separation from God. Romans 8, 7 to 8, For the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul paints a picture of a spiral of depravity, hostility, denial, and separation. The beginning of verse 7, the sinful nature is hostile to God. The second half of verse 7, the sinful nature never did obey God and never will, a refusal to submit. And finally, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
that sinful nature will be finally cut off from God. William Wilberforce is credited as being one of history's most influential advocates and warriors in abolishing the transatlantic slave trade. He did so in a climate whereby the slave trade represented 80% of the British Empire's economy. And he did so as a devout Christian anchored in God's word. Setting his mind on the things of the spirit and not the flesh, William Wilberforce fought tirelessly, putting his private and public reputation on the line to petition and ultimately succeed in the British Empire banning the slave trade in 1833. No doubt you've heard of him and studied him in your history textbooks. I recently had the opportunity to hold William Wilberforce's personal Bible. He was at the conclusion of a Bible museum tour in London. My family was out recently, and the host asked if we'd like to have our picture taken with any of the Bibles he had in display. Pick anyone you like, he said. He had a copy of William Wilberforce's personal Bible. He unlocked the display cabinet and handed it to me. And as I flipped through it, I could see that the pages were littered with notations and markings. It was clearly evident that God's word was central to this man's life. With the host's permission, I flipped to Romans and captured a photo. Now, this is a 16th century King James Bible, and in the script, S's look like lowercase f's. But you can read here Romans 7.14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And you can see next to the verse, William has scrawled a notation as its slave. Sold under sin as its slave. No doubt these words carried a particular weight with Mr. Wilberforce, who himself would have understood so much of the gravity of slavery. As slaves to sin, we are owned by sin. We are owned by Satan himself. We cannot please God. We are cut off from God for eternity, and we need to be rescued. If that's where you are today, owned by sin and cut off from God, God is offering you freedom from sin. Throughout history, there have been many, many individuals who have played a role in rescuing people from the grips of slavery. William Wilberforce is about one of hundreds of thousands. But there is only one person who can rescue you from the bondage of sin, and that's Jesus Christ. Recognize that God sets the standard, that you have fallen short of his standard, and that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, was resurrected through the power of the Holy Spirit, and accept that same spirit to live and rule in your own life. And while we struggle each day with the battle of the flesh and the spirit, the good news is that once we have accepted God's rescue from sin, we no longer live under the mind of the flesh. We live in the mind of the Spirit. As we jump into verses 9 through 11 and look at the mind of the Spirit, I think it's important to summarize and get our bearings in terms of the, the three primary meanings of the word salvation. Salvation in the Scripture has three primary meanings, the first one being justification, a one-time event secured for us by Christ's death on the cross. When we speak of getting saved, we're referring to this one-time event. Sanctification, a continuous process throughout our lives that follows our justification, whereby the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, helping us to better reflect the person of Jesus Christ. And glorification, that future state after life on earth when we will be perfect. Verses 9 to 11 are a picture of these three aspects of salvation. Verse 9 clearly states the good news. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is the promise of the Spirit. And the if here seems like a pretty big if, but it's not. The word if here could also be translated since or as a result of. Just like in the phrase, ice will form if in fact we freeze water, there is no doubt about the outcome of ice forming. 
We're simply laying out the relationship that exists. Similarly here, you whoever are not in the flesh but in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. The NLT translation here is helpful in understanding Paul's intent. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the spirit if you have the spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And again, the second part of this verse is not meant to cast doubt or create additional criteria in determining our salvation. Rather, this statement is describing our true state as Christians with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Leon Morris puts it this way, The presence of the Spirit in believers is not an interesting extra to be seen in a few unusual people or religious leaders. It is the normal and necessary feature of being a Christian at all. The application here for the Christian is that in spite of the fact that we can certainly see glimpses of ourselves in verses 6 to 8, having been sold into slavery under sin, we are not bound to it. We do not belong to it. We are not characterized by it, and we are not viewed by God as being under sin. For we do have the Spirit of God living in us. I trust you can see how this verse is in fact a promise of the Holy Spirit to all believers. In fact, this is likely the clearest promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in all of Scripture. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. And so the promise and the hope described for those that have the mind of the Spirit is yours. That's the application. Live like you believe it's true. Let the mind of the Spirit dominate everything you do. Now, this is not your best life now. This is not the Lord wants to bless your bank account. We already went over those things earlier, and those things are the mind of the flesh. And while God certainly has dominion over those areas of your life, that's not where his focus is, nor where, I should be, nor where ours should be either. Our focus should be on the fruits of the Spirit. And so in verse 10, um, number two is the work of the Spirit, which is sanctification. You know, the our justification and the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of our lives naturally leads us to one of the primary questions we all struggle with. If I have the Spirit living in with, within me, why do I continue to sin? As Paul says earlier in chapter 7, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Romans seven fifteen. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. As a believer, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, getting rid of sin and making you more like Christ. The Holy Spirit living in you means the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life. How is that evident in your life? If we are truly following the Holy Spirit and allowing him to take up residence in our life, then we will be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. And the checklist is quite simple. It's Galatians 5, 22-23. At the beginning of the pandemic, we painted the fruit of the Spirit on the windows of our house as a way to communicate hope to our neighbors. 18 months later, we still haven't cleaned those, windows, those words off our windows because we're lazy. Actually, it's because they apply just as much before or after a pandemic as they do in the middle of one. The application here is simple. It's hard, but it's simple. And finally, verse 11. The resurrection of the Spirit, glorification. Verse 11 is really the pinnacle of these seven verses we're looking at today, as it speaks to the hope we have in the work of the Holy Spirit through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our ultimate motivation for having a mind of the Spirit is Christ's work on the cross. And to fully understand the weight of the meaning behind this verse, we need to familiarize ourselves with the rich meaning behind Jesus' death and his resurrection, and the connection to the work of the Holy Spirit. And to do that, 
We need to head back to Acts 2. If you'll allow it, and even if you won't, I'm going to be reading this chapter from the NLT as the translation here is very accessible for a modern audience and will allow us to move through this passage quickly. We want to move through the entire chapter here. And just to set the stage, this is on the day of Pentecost. It was 50 days after Jesus' resurrection and 10 days after his ascension into heaven. One of the three major annual festivals, Pentecost, was for the thanksgiving of the harvested crops, and Jews from many nations would have been gathered in Jerusalem at the time. Starting in verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages, as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. The writer Luke then lists out the different languages being spoken, and down in verse 12, resumes, They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, They're just drunk, that's all. Then Peter stepped forward with the eleven other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. Let's pause here. Firstly, this was a big deal. It says they came running. And secondly, they didn't know what to make of this, even though it says that they were devout Jews. It's important to understand that a first century Jew, although they had the Old Testament scriptures, and even if they knew them well, they wouldn't have necessarily understood the full implications of Christ's death and resurrection. This is why Paul says in Colossians, Colossians 1, 25-26, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To understand the mind of the first century Jew, we need to go back to Genesis 15. God has promised Abraham that he will give him land, descendants, and that he will be a blessing to the world. Abraham challenges God as to how he, Abraham, can know this will happen. And God makes a covenant with Abraham. It was a covenant ceremony that would have been ancient even in Abraham's day. And it involved cutting animals in half, letting the blood pool in the middle, and then each party walking through the blood to signify that if they break their end of the deal, they will be killed like those animals. But then in a surprising twist, Abraham does not walk through the blood, but rather God walks through the blood for him to clearly say to Abraham, Abraham, if you break your end of the deal, I will die in your place. This becomes the foundation of the nation of Israel's ritual sacrifices. These sacrifices include precise timings that were made twice daily at exactly mid-morning, which is 9 a.m., and mid-afternoon, which is 3 p.m. And for more than a thousand years, twice a day, a horn would sound that would let all people know within its earshot that at that moment there was an animal being sacrificed on their behalf for their sins. And in doing so, the Jews are saying to God, you promised you would pay the penalty for my sin. Every day, twice a day, for thousands of years. Let's jump forward to the day of the crucifixion. You know, it's no accident that the New Testament authors, two of them, record the exact time at which Jesus expires on the cross. A 
Again, reading from the NLT, which converts the timings to our 24-hour clock. It's much more helpful. Luke 23. By this time it was about noon and darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. The light from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with these words, he breathed his last. This was clearly the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament. On that very day, at that very moment, a lamb was being slaughtered in the temple courts. But as that horn sounded outside the city, the true lamb of God had been slaughtered making the ultimate and final sacrifice for the world's sin. And this was the connection that Peter's preaching about. The Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead at work in us and revealed here in Acts. Back in Acts 2, Peter continues, No, what you see here was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark, and the moon will turn blood red, before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and this prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross, and you killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in his grip. Down to 32. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand, and the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. This was the mystery revealed. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promises to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. This was the completed plan of salvation from God through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's Communion Sunday, and as Josh and the worship team come forward, which is actually just Josh, and as we prepare our hearts for the distribution of the elements and for taking communion, we have that same question before us today. Brothers, what should we do? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You know, we've unpacked just a fraction of the magnificence and the power and the perfection of Christ's work on the cross. On the night he was betrayed, as Jesus leads his disciples through the Last Supper, the very nature of the communion ceremony, it also held deep and important meaning for Jesus' disciples. 
and it provides a very beautiful illustration of Jesus Christ's desire to live with us. You see, during biblical times, a young man who wanted to marry would accompany his father to the chosen woman's house where she and her father would be present. After negotiating the bride price, the young man's father would hand his son a cup of wine. And that son, in turn, would offer to the woman and say, this cup I offer to you. In effect, he was saying, I love you, and I offer you my life. Will you marry me? If she drank it, sealing the arrangement, she accepted his life and gave him hers. When Jesus offers the cup that night to his disciples, they would have immediately recognized this powerful symbol. A symbol of the closeness and the intimacy of the relationship that the God of this universe was offering to each one of them. Matthew 26, 27 says, And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you. Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, just let the elements pass you by today. But know that the God of this universe, the creator and designer of everything that exists, including you, wants desperately to be in an intimate relationship with you. Not only has he created and designed you, he has beautifully woven his calling to you down through history. Do you hear his call? Do you accept him as your Lord and Savior? And do you surrender your life to the power of the Holy Spirit? For those of you who have a personal relationship with Jesus, you have the very power of the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead living in you. You have an intimacy with a, cho a closeness with the Holy Spirit in residence in you. How will this change how you think? How will this change how you act? Let your primary, most basic, and most fundamental focus be on God and not on the things of this world.